This morning we will be continuing our way through the first book of Samuel. We've reached 1 Samuel chapter 10. You'll be able to find that on page 320 of your pew Bible. Now today we continue to look at uh, Saul's kingship, the beginning of Saul's kingship, the inauguration of his reign as an image of the kingship of Christ. It's a lesser image for sure. Uh, shadow of Christ's kingship, and yet it still points ahead to Christ. Last time we were in 1 Samuel, you may remember how the Lord brought King Saul near in the most unexpected ways, a winding road following some donkeys, and getting more and more desperate until he was a last-ditch attempt to meet, uh, to find them by going to the seer, to Samuel himself. And God was the one who put all of this into action, saying to Samuel, now I'm going to be sending you a man who's looking for donkeys, and this is the man who I have chosen to be king. So in this very way, we saw last week how, or two weeks ago, how God revealed to Israel how all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. He's in control of it all. And now we come to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When you have departed from me today, you'll find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys which you went to look for haven't found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree of Tabor. There three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. They will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands. After that, when you come to the hill of God where the Philistine Philistine garrison is, and it will happen when you have come there to that city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them, and they will be prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel that the Lord gave him another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, What is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? 
And when he had finished prophesying, he went to the high place. Then Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? So he said, To look for the donkeys. When we saw they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly about the, that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Saul had said. And then we come to our focal point. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversities and your tribulations. And you have said to him, No, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty and wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. And valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. So far, the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as we come to our passage today, we see the prophet Samuel beginning with calling out the people of God. He reminded the people of their rebellion in asking for a king to rule over them. Essentially, they were saying, this hasn't been working for us. This whole thing being ruled by God, it hasn't been working for us. And so we need something else. We need a king to rule over us. A king just like all of the other nations because clearly they have it all together. Well, Samuel points out to them that, no, it's not the fact that all the nations have everything all together that they seem to be doing better than you. You yourself have been delivered by God. God is the one who's watching over you. It went well for you when he brought you up out of the land of Egypt. It went well for you, it went well for you when he struck the people with plagues providing for you. 
But as you've come here to Israel, as you've settled down, you've wandered away from the Lord. And it's this wandering away from the Lord that has caused you to fragment, to bicker among each other, to fight. It's this wandering away from the Lord that has caused you to run into all kinds of trouble. But still, the Lord will look out for you. Your desire to set a king over you was a desire that was motivated by your wanting to be like the nations around you. It was a godless desire. And God will still look after you despite all of that. He will appoint a king over you. And so, what happens after that is first, tribe by tribe, the people are brought before Saul. Next, clan by clan, and then family by family, until finally Saul himself is chosen. This was a man whom God had appointed already beforehand. And this was a man whom God had caused Samuel to anoint. And by his anointing this man, he was showing all of the people that this is my chosen one. But all that being said, was that all that it meant that this was his chosen one? Well, the Hebrew word for anointed one that we find coming back again and again through scriptures is Mashiach or Messiah. This comes back in the New Testament where the Greek word for anointed one, Christos or Christ, is used. By the time the New Testament rolled around, the anointed one was in capital letters, you might say, and everyone knew that there was a specific prophesied one that the name was pointing to. But in Saul's day, this was a little bit different. What did it actually mean for Saul to be anointed? Boys and girls in Harvest, you may know some of this from your time in school. You may remember your teachers talking about a priest or a a prophet taking a decorated horn from a ram or a bull or some other container. And it would be olive oil like you'd find in your mom's kitchen cupboard mixed with sweet-smelling things In Exodus 30, it talks about myrrh, cinnamon, sweet-smelling cane, cassia. And this mixture would be poured over the head of the person who is being anointed. To be anointed was more than just a symbol of God having chosen that person. To be anointed was a picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit on that person. Not only had God chosen that person who was being anointed, but he was going to give that person the right and the special gifts to do what they had to do, to do the task that he had appointed them to. King Saul had this reinforced for him even before he was appointed 
by, the, by public acclamation, even before the people recognized him as king. He received the confirmation and strengthening when the Holy Spirit came down on him in power as he met up with prophets. By the power of God, he found himself prophesying. These prophets, by the way, would likely have been part of a school of prophets, a school of prophets that would have been under the care of Samuel. There were schools for prophets and all the aspects of prophecy that could be taught, humanly speaking. And people who went to these schools were named sons of the prophets. Hence, when they ask, who is their father? They're, at, they're pointing the finger at Samuel. So when Saul was prophesying, we shouldn't necessarily think that he was telling the future, but rather he joined in with these men who were likely students of the prophet Samuel, and he was singing songs of praise and such that he had never learned the words for. So this led them to say, is Saul too among the prophets? Is he too a student of Samuel? For Saul, however he could recognize that, no, he wasn't one of those sons of the prophets. He wasn't one of those followers of Samuel. But he was made to be like a new man by the power of the Spirit. For Saul himself, this was a sign that he's being equipped and empowered to do something that he himself would never have the courage to do. It was a reminder that he could look back on, that his God would give him everything that he needed The question which immediately followed that, though, for the rest of his kingship would be, would he look back to this God who had anointed him for everything that he needed? Would he rely on this God? The anointing that we find today, both of the office of king and the later special anointing that happened with the Holy Spirit on Saul remind us of another anointing too, don't they? The anointing of the one who was named the Anointed One, Jesus Christ. At the time of Christ's baptism, we see this anointing happening also in a very public way. Yes, he didn't have oil coming down on him, but he had the Holy Spirit himself descend on him in visible form, in the form of a dove. He didn't have his own mouth open up with the words given to him from heaven, but he had heaven itself open up and the words come down saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We see King Saul here being anointed and appointed, but he himself is just another man. He himself is just another person in the mix of this nation This weak nation, this nation that had fallen away, this nation that had wandered from God. With Saul, we have somebody over whose life hangs a question mark. Will he look to the Lord? But with Jesus Christ, we have the more perfect king. Not only was he anointed as the one on whom his father was well pleased, 
but he continues to reign from heaven. And he will return at the end of days to establish his kingdom and power. The Holy Spirit points us through the anointing of Saul to the better king who was Christ. And this brings us to our second point. Now if you're familiar with the Gospels, this comparison of Christ and Saul may bring to mind another moment in history as well. There was a time in which Christ also avoided the kingship. In John 6, we read how Jesus had finished preaching to the people and then feeding 5,000 of them with loaves and fish, and the people were feeling good about him. And because this was the case, they wanted to put him on a throne. But Jesus took a step back from that, we read in that passage. Here today, too, we see Saul taking a step back from the kingship. After Saul was anointed, Samuel takes some steps to show to him, to encourage him personally, and to later reveal to the people in a very public way that this man he has anointed is really the one who has been chosen by God for the job. And so he goes through the very public process of choosing people by lot. Saul's tribe is chosen, his clan is chosen, his family is chosen. And then he is chosen. Knowing what's coming, as he sees it narrowing down on him, Saul chooses this moment to duck out. He runs away and he hides among the baggage that's stored there when the people all came together. When the people ask, where is he? Samuel sends out searchers. The Lord directs them to the baggage, to the equipment that they have piled up. And sure enough, there they find him hiding. Not particularly kingly behavior, but okay, he looks like a king. And that's enough for many of them. Head and shoulders above everyone else, handsome as anything. He's exactly what some of them were looking for. But what are we to make of the fact that he tried to hide? Some have called this a charming sense of humility. One commentator spoke about how this was endearing to the people. But what was at the heart of his running away? One thing that we find coming back again and again in the life of Saul is the fear of man. No matter how high he rises or how powerful he becomes, the fear of man is what is constantly riding him. And if anything, his elevation to kingship only highlights this flaw in his nature. Certainly we see him overcome when he's filled with the Spirit. We see in later chapters how filled with the Spirit, he's also filled with courage to carry out his task, the task that God calls him to. But His fear of man comes back and his later, his undoing. And it all begins here with his hiding among the baggage, more afraid of people than of the responsibility which God has called him to. This might seem harsh. We see here, beloved of God, how the fear of man, 
something we're all prone to, can be devastating. The fact that we're all prone to this can give us a lot of sympathy for Saul. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we need to recognize how damaging the fear of man can be. Beginning in a way that might seem charming to those who are around, it can grow and turn into something which can tear apart homes and bring down kingdoms. Now compare that to Christ. Christ was a man who avoided the kingship. Fully God and fully man, he could have laid claim to it rightfully. He could have laid claim to it openly. But for him, it was driven by something very different. For him, his refusal to lay claim to this earthly kingship was not fear of man, but obedience. It was obedience to his heavenly Father's will. An obedience that we find sadly lacking in the life of Saul due to his fear of man. Christ later explained it in this way to Pontius Pilate when he was on trial, saying in John 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. For Christ, it was his faithfulness towards his heavenly Father that overrode his fear of man. It overrode his fear of everything, even death, so that he might redeem many people to God. If he was faithful, then through, if he was faithful then through that, how much more can we not be sure that he will be faithful to us now that he sits and reigns in heaven? Beloved, we don't have a king who has stumbled. We don't have a king who has fallen. We don't have a king who has shrunk away in fear. Rather, we have a king who stands firm. A king whom we can rely on. For us, we can sometimes be overwhelmed by the things that we face in this world can be overwhelmed by the fear of men, by the opinions of those who are around us. But once again, we can be reminded that we are to look to this king. We are to look to this king who denied himself in order that we ourselves could be redeemed. And this brings us to our final point. It's not long before we see the fact that, the, that Saul's being chosen to be king is not the answer to all of the problems of the people of Israel like they thought it was. Certainly the majority of him approve him as their king. The call, long live the king, is what's known as being appointed to rule by acclamation. It's basically the people saying, yes, we do want this man to be our king. But not surprisingly, Saul is not a man whom everyone could or would adore as their king. There is no man who could possibly live up to everybody's expectations. We read in verse 27 here how some rebels said, how can this man save us? And so they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. 
And here, by the grace of God, we see nobility in Saul shining through. It was terribly offensive in the culture of his day not to bring gifts to a newly installed leader. These would have been tokens of goodwill, showing that they recognized his right to rule and they respected it and they honored him. But by refusing, these men were publicly defying and insulting him. This wasn't just a private statement. They were deliberately showing the whole nation of Israel that they despised this man. It was a very public and humiliating act. As king in that day, he had every right to assert his right to rule, even from a worldly point of view. He had been acclaimed by the masses. They had all shouted, long live the king. They had appointed him to the position. But there was even more to that, to it than that. All of the evidence pointed to his divine right to rule as well. The path that God had used to lead him there. The anointing, the divine confirmations of his right to rule, and the spirit being poured out on him. Him being chosen by lot out of all the nation of Israel. Again and again and again, Saul was proved to be their legitimate king. In fact, if he had been like any other ruler in his day, he would likely have poured out his wrath on them and ordered them to death. But he chose not to. Admirably, he chose instead to show them grace. He remained silent. And in this particular case, it wasn't a silence that came from fear. Rather, it was him holding his peace. This was a deliberate act on his part. Finally, we see Saul choosing to wait on the Lord. There was no excuse for the rebellion of these people. He had been appointed by God, and his divine right to rule had been chosen had been shown to them, and the majority of the people had recognized this, choosing to respond with appointing him. And yet he chose to keep his peace. He recognized that there was no need for him to prove his own authority. When the time was right, the Lord would act. And so he returned to his home until that day. And beloved in Christ, this is where we can look to Saul. As Christians, you and I are very likely to face a similar response in this world. As ambassadors for Christ, we are the ones who are proclaiming his rule in this world. There are many who despise the rule of Christ and who are very willing to make that fact known to our faces. And we ask ourselves, what's to be our response to that? Should we be angry? Are we called to get violent? Is there a need for punishment? Jesus is king after all, isn't he? We've seen that through looking at the life of Saul and then looking ahead to the kingship of Christ. Jesus Christ is king. Well, this position of violence is one that many have taken that some have taken in the past. They've demanded that we have a militant Christianity. They've tried to set up Christian states in this world, beginning with individual cities here and there, a new Zion on earth from which Christ will rule. 
But that, first and foremost, is not what Christ calls us to do. Rather, we are called to hold our peace. You see, Christ is king. Whether those who are around us, those who might scoff at us, recognize it or not, Christ is king. And there will be a day when he will come and he will make his rule known. But this doesn't mean we can sit back idly. We are to maintain our peace, yes. But we are also called to continue to work faithfully and quietly for the kingdom of heaven because we know in whom our hope is founded. We, at least, do recognize his rule. And his faithful work in heaven continues. As this faithful work in heaven continues, he advances his kingdom here on earth through us. As King Jesus Christ governs us, as our catechism says, by his word and spirit. And he calls us to lean on this to guide us as we move ahead through life. And as we strive to work and live every day for his kingdom, we're called to wake, our, to wake up again, asking ourselves, how can I live today as an ambassador for Christ my King? As a mom or as someone in the workforce or as volunteer or child, how can I live for Christ in the strength that he's given me? How can I live knowing a certain knowledge that he is King? And that I'm working towards the day when he will make this known to the world. Let's remember his rule as we live and work peaceably. And let's faithfully, every day, advance in our little corner of the world, the kingdom of Christ, wherever he has placed us. We live under God's anointed king. And so we need not fear rejection or being despised. We need not avoid responsibility out of fear for man. But rather we are called to lean on him, to rely on him. We also are anointed to live under his rule, declaring it to the world. And to spur us on in this, we know that we can look to that same spirit who came on him that his spirit also lives in us, binding us to him, making us his own, and giving us the strength every day to live for him as we look to him in faith. Amen.